Welcome to Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismandel. Internet radio is probably older than you think it is. If you're like most people who've enjoyed internet radio, you've maybe been listening 10, 15 years. But did you know it goes back a quarter of a century? It might even go back a little longer than that. And that is the history that my guest today uncovered. His name is Dom Robinson. He is the co-founder and director of a UK-based online video company called Ideas. He is also a contributing editor to Streaming Media Magazine, and that's where he recently published part one of his history, 25 Years of Internet Radio. So we're going to dig in deep. It's a little nerdy. It's a little geeky, but I think you can follow along and find out about these early, early, early internet radio broadcasts, uh, and arguably the first one was a mistake. So let's go ahead and hear from Dom Robinson. Dom, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Radio Survivor. You recently published a story in Streaming Media Magazine about 25 years of internet radio. And so I think, first of all, a lot of people don't even realize that internet radio is is now 25 years old. How did you trace back this uh, birth and sort of signify this birth of internet radio? Yeah, it's funny. I stuck a marker of 25 uh, years in, in, the, uh, in the ground when I pitched the idea to Eric, the editor of the magazine. Um, and actually, I think we go back 27 years, um, which is even more incredible. So uh, I certainly wasn't wasn't quite expecting the history to be as rich as it was uh, and diverse. But uh, the the 25 years in the first first instance was more of a guess, and I was quite blown away um, at quite how how far back uh, the story of internet radio goes. I mean, in some ways, it goes back to the to the early 70s, but it gets a bit pedantic when you when you go beyond a certain point so um so yeah i think i think 25 years is a good good round number to have used and so that that puts us at about 1993 right in in that case um 25 years back and that's you know that's a time before i think most people in the general public had heard of the internet that's right before most people had access to the internet and those who did usually were at at a university or a research institution of some sort, um, and they were accessing it probably, you know, in a lab in an office. Yeah, not not at home. They, you know, the, the number of people who had internet access at home was probably fairly limited then. That's right. Yeah. No. The um, certainly. Um, I mean, in the article, the the uh, story about the first internet DJ, uh, who actually predates most, pretty much everyone else, really. Uh, he he was DJing. T- the, the people who were tuned in at that point in time are the people who are today known as the fa- the fathers of the internet, They're the founders of the internet. They were uh, an elite bunch, and there were uh, there must have been. I, I'm hazarding a guess here, but there must have been somewhere between 50 and 100 people tuned into that, and they weren't you know, they weren't expecting it. It was a happy accident, but uh, um, it, it is amazing to reflect on the fact that only only 25, 30 years ago, the internet was a tiny place compared with what it is now. Now. Uh, and and the technologies um, certainly came bursting out of that door in in, in about ninety three really. Well, I, I suppose actually the internet was really an audio space in some ways before it was a data space. Um, in as much as how we, so? Well, people were looking for what different in a packet 
networking as a as a as a as a science, if you like, was emerging to give voice networks more resilience initially. Okay. And then and so packet networking is the way the internet works, right? Little piece the all the data is chunked up into little pieces that's right. that get uh that get transmitted about uh and there's some level of error correction in that where if uh your receiving computer or or a computer somewhere on the network notices that it didn't receive a packet, it can say, Hey, send me another packet, send that's me another right. one. That's right. So I think it was Bob Metcalf in, who introduced Ethernet in the uh late sixties. Packet networking was around in the 60s, and then mm. obviously Vince Cerf and Bob Kahn uh, introduced TCP/IP in the month of my birthday, uh, 45 years ago this month um, in 1973. Uh, and that's the that's the fundamental protocol that that runs the internet. This is the sort of set of ideas and standards uh, upon which what we have as the internet is built. That's right. right. So IP being the way of a of one piece of data being able to find its way through a, uh, for want of a better word, cloud uh, of, uh, of different options for uh, the way it could cross a, cross a, a global network. Um, and, and IP was really the way that that was addressed and the scheme with which that was addressed so that any type of physical network which adopted IP addressing um, could both access uh, services um, provided by similar systems elsewhere on on the network, um, or, or and equally could could respond and offer services to the network, uh, and that was that was introduced in um, September 1973, uh, and I, I actually reached out to um, Vince Cerf. We've I've done a few interviews with him and so on, so I kind of got to know him a bit, and I reached out to him to see what his opinion was of what the first stream was, one of those backroom conversations we always have in streaming media uh, and, and at many other conferences. Um, and Vint was uh, keen to highlight Steve Kasner's uh, work on the network vo voice protocol, which was already being used on ARPANET technologies in uh, as IP was introduced. So really the internet was born with a streaming capability uh, and um, when when I asked Vint what he actually thought was the first uh, streaming technology, when the ARPANET was turned off on, I think, April the 4th, 1984, uh, which is the official birthday of the internet, even though it had actually been gestating for a, a good decade. And, and so uh, to kind of pull this apart for a lay audience, for people who aren't you know as familiar with with uh you know the the history of the internet what what you're saying here is that um is that the sort of the protocol for the internet early on people built on this ability to transmit voice yes uh and and we're talking about you called it the arpanet right and yeah. this is sort of the pre-internet was a network that that really connected up uh, and was you, military sites and research sites used mostly for military purposes in the United States primarily um and then as that uh, network evolved, eventually it was turned off in favor of what we now call the Internet, which uh, encompassed a wider range of functions, a wider range of applications, uh, many more civilian applications, of course, as we know it now. But it was sort of built fundamentally on, on kind of uh, military-funded uh, technology. Yeah. And that early on, there was this ability to, to send speech um, for conferencing, I suppose, and for messaging of various sorts. Um, and then you know by 1980, uh, it was in 1984. You said is when yeah. sort of the 
is when the public internet comes into being. And so we already have kind of this capability built in to the internet, uh, even though, uh, again, to, to most, to, to most average people and probably to even many uh, people who were using the internet at the time, they didn't know. Mm. And, and I'd like to flash forward to, to 1993 here, right? Mm. That's the date, that's a, the, the date is 25 years ago, uh, in 2018. When we're recording this, and uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of that, sort of the the time in which it was the first person playing internet DJ, and can, can you explain that a little bit? Like, how does someone just accidentally, yeah. how does someone just start being an internet DJ? Who is this person? Okay, so I'll, I'll, go, I'll do the big reveal in a minute, but I'll just do a, li- a little bit more um, sort of pedantic definition of terms. So there are when you say internet radio to people, people have um, s- several immediate thoughts of what that means, and um, I think uh, it's important to separate out what podcasting is, which is kind of the audio on demand uh, uh, idea that you can select a piece of audio and listen to it there and then over a network. Um, and what I would define as internet radio, which um, has a, there is a, an element of synchronicity between the uh, the the broadcaster, the, the radio station, and the listener. So the things are kind of happening pretty much at the same time, i.e., mm-hmm. if you could send a message to the DJ, he could say hello to you on air. And that, for me, was my definition of radio. So it was interesting when I went looking for who the very earliest pioneers of an internet radio are. The first person you come across in, in, in any Google search and so on is, is a chap called Carl Malamud, um, who's actually quite famous now because he's the president of public.resource.org which is all about promoting uh, promoting access to uh, access to uh, material to the general public and so on uh, he started producing a series of um, amazing uh, radio shows they're very much the, the traditional radio format that was called um, in internet talk radio and, and the show he was doing was called geek of the week so he basically was talking to all the founders of the internet about the latest internet technologies and they're, they're all still available online and they're a marvelous listener they're really engaging um, it's amazing hearing sort of uh, how DNS is being deployed because uh, it was at the time when DNS is kind of really new and these are critical well today you know DNS is what translates a dot com into a, a, a network address and so on and these were really nascent technologies and he's talking with the people who've written that software as this series of shows but they were all pre-recorded and then um, there was a Sun Microsystem, Sun Spark Station that they used uh, and they um, they used, and I think they either wrote or they certainly used a, a tool which is still in the Linux kernel typically called SOX, the sound exchange tool, which was converting um, the original recorded produced shows into .au files which they were then pushing out and distributing kind of on a bulletin board service model. So they were pushing those files out over the ARPANET, over the, well, what it had become by then, the, the, the internet, to academic institutions and to other relay servers which were starting to emerge online. So people could then download these files and listen to them. Just to give an idea of the age and, uh, and evolution of the technology, it was taking them 24 hours to compress a, uh, I think there were 30, mm-hmm. 30 minute shows. Might have been one, mm. hour, one hour shows, but it was taking them 24 hours to do the compression, and it resulted in a 30 meg 
uh, .au file. And in those days, 30 meg was a reasonably big file. <laughs> this is in the days when yeah. computers were shipped with two gigabyte hard drives, you know. So, um, so yeah, that was a very early model. And because it was a radio format show, um, Carl is often... Uh, talked of as being the pioneer of internet radio, but 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 according to your definition, right? It sounds almost more like a podcast. So I would absolutely credit Carl with being the world's first podcaster. There's no doubt about it in my mind. They really did some pioneering stuff. They produced proper content. It was regularly produced. It was made available for download and and listen after the shows. But it, it, and he does talk about doing some live shows in '94 uh, on the M Bone and doing some live streaming. But um, but that's much, much, much after the first internet radio DJ who I chanced on by accident. So um, so basically, with go, going back to my definition of this uh, idea that, you know, there's a DJ, he's doing something, he's capturing the moment of, uh, 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 of how he feels, of what's going on in his life and in, this, in, in, in the wider context in the world. And he's creating a transmission here and now. Uh, and if you're listening to that, the other end of a transmission system, whether it's the an internet network or a, an FM radio broadcast, it, it, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the important thing is the synchronicity, which for me is, is inherently important to radio. I know mm -hmm. there's so many commercial radio stations these days which are all pre-recorded and cleverly done with playouts, and actually there's no one in the studio. There's just a little robot playing it out and so on. But for me... You know, one of the essences of the radio is when I listen to that voice of the DJ, I know that that DJ is alive somewhere out there and it feels like a personal experience for me, uh, not something that was just laid out that I happened to blunder into. So I was very much looking for who did the first live linear transmission um, and who, uh, who um, uh, actually spoke at the same time someone else did in the context of a radio program. Now, we know that people spoke to each other over networks because there were mm -hmm. video – well, there weren't video conferences, but there were audio conferences through the 70s and 80s on phone networks, and some of those started to use IP for bits of backbone. So any one of those could be considered an internet radio transmission, but – they were two. They were all inherently two-way. Right. So it's more like a phone call than than a broadcast. Exactly. It, it is exactly a phone call, and so um, and that's not quite the same as somebody sitting down and starting to play music and then introducing their radio channel and communicating uh, about their show and why they've chosen their content and so on. Uh, in my sort of research, I reached out to another old old contact of mine, John Crowcroft. Um, he he's an amazing character. He's one. I think he still is on the Internet Architecture Board. So he's one of the a dozen or so people that rubber stamps the IETF standards. So the the, the standards. He's proper old school. He's, he's currently um, Marconi Professor of Communication Systems in the Computing Laboratory of the University of Cambridge here in the UK. I met him when he was Professor of Computing at um, UCL University College London, uh, which was. I think, from memory, the third node on the internet after Harvard and Stanford. Mm. Um, so he was there right at the beginning of the internet emerging. He, he mentioned uh, that there was um, some transmissions going on on, on, a, on, a, on, a on a network that was within the internet called the M-Bone. 
I'm going to take a breath there because I've probably thrown lots of different technical jargon. Yeah, yeah. I think we well, you need to sort of explain this this M bone concept because yeah. it's it's not something which is really in active use today. So the M bone um, was for, for me is one of the most fascinating parts of the internet's history. Um, so it stands for multicast backbone and multicast. Um, originally called selective broadcast, um, is a very interesting technology, which is has never really realized its full potential on the internet. Um, but I, it, I think it could be quite transformative were it to be deployed properly. What happens is you've got three different ways of transmitting data over a network. The first one is fairly obvious to anyone who's ever downloaded a file on the internet, and that's called unicasting. And that is where... You make a request to a remote server. You ask for your file. It doesn't matter if that's an audio file or a video file or whatever, but you make the request and that server serves you and just you that bit of data. And for the duration of the time that file is being transferred to you, you take up bandwidth on the server, you take up bandwidth in the network and you take up bandwidth on your own local network connection. So it's very much the same as having a direct cable connection running privately from you to the server for the duration of the file being transferred. So that's unicast. There's then a more familiar paradigm, certainly to um, your, your, your audience, is the, is the concept of broadcasting. So broadcasting on a network is the same as broadcasting on uh, an antenna. Basically, anyone who is connected to that 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 network can receive the file at the same time. So I, the server sends the file. It has no idea if the recipients receive it or not, but as many recipients as are tuned in to that network and ready to receive the file that want to receive it can, in theory, receive that file at the same time. And, and, and really, in effect, isn't this, I mean, in, in how uh, modern digital cable television works in a lot of ways, uh, you know, it's something which is mostly opaque to us as, as, as end users, as viewers, but, you know, uh, it's all digital now. And so if you are uh, watching cable television, you know, it's in the United States, at the very least, I'm sure elsewhere in the world, it's digital and it's really being sent by multicast. It's just only on your cable that on your cable company system, it's not going across the internet. That's right. So traditional cable networks do do indeed use broadcast, um, but not exclusively now. So and right. uh, and that's where we 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 find the transition. So in 1988, Steve Deering proposed an idea called selective broadcast. Okay, so the idea is you imagine what the internet looks like with many many people connected to it. And if somebody wanted to broadcast to everybody, they'd clog up everyone's routers, if you like, with the broadcast transmission, whether the recipients wanted it or not. So you're forcing that transmission, you're taking up all the network capacity to send that data to everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some things that do broadcast on the internet, but they're all very, they're all minute bits of data for things like discovering computers that are in the same network and things like that. So there's very, broadcasting on the internet is very limited. Um, so Steve Deering proposed this idea of selective broadcast where uh, what happens is the transmission is sent over the same network that everybody is connected to, but it's only actually sent or forwarded across the network towards the people who've actually requested the data or who've registered that they want to receive the data. 
Hmm. So if you have a fork in that road and on one side of the fork, nobody wants to listen to the to the to the radio stream or nobody wants to receive the data but on the other side there are some people that do then the data is only forwarded towards the people who do want it which means that the network that doesn't have any subscribers any people wanting to listen to it that side of the network doesn't have any any of its capacity used and obviously mm -hmm. that then means that other people can use the capacity that's still available to create other transmissions and so on so it's something you can't do with radio spectrum um, but you can do it on a on a routed network because you can on an internet, yeah, exactly. You can switch off parts of it, and the multicast protocols. I could talk for hours about this, Paul. So do stop me. This is my absolute baby pet subject. This one, but the multicast protocols, when they were first introduced, they would send a, like a pulse out. I think that's the easiest way to describe it in layman's terms. They would send a pulse out saying we're transmitting. Does anybody want to receive the transmission? And anybody who wants to wanted to receive the transmission effectively just tuned in. And then mm -hmm. they would be able to receive the multicast. The problem was those pulses would go everywhere like a broadcast. And sometimes mm -hmm. they would loop back into what an audio engineer would call a feedback, a feedback loop. And mm -hmm. that would clog up networks, those bits of data would just go round and round and round, just like a microphone pointed at a speaker, and they would literally clog up the networks. So when the early multicast tests happened in the mid-90s, especially with a protocol called DVMRP, which I won't go into now, but when those happened, the, the CTOs, the chief technology officers who were trying to launch these consumer ISPs tried out multicasting, thinking, ooh, maybe we could get into radio and television, and then broke their networks and became terrified of multicast. And when you say, yeah, ISPs, you're talking about, you know, people offering internet access to consumers. In that, their that's right. That's right. So multicast didn't really catch the wave that, say, email or the World Wide Web or DNS or SMTP or, or some of those other more common protocols did. Multicast was just a little bit of a late starter. Now, what happened was the academic institutions who were spending public money on their internet connectivity wanted to make sure they could be as efficient as possible. So the academic institutions that were connected to each other through the internet created a, a, what we'd call today a virtual network within the internet where they, they, they connected to each other with these kind of private tunnels and those private tunnels then all supported a specific configuration of multicasting and that virtual network became known as the M-Bone, the multicast backbone. And then transmissions that were transmitted on the M-Bone network were available as a multicast to all recipients, just like it was as if it was a broadcast, but it was very efficient. So you would only, if there were 200 users in a university, the university would only receive the, the, the stream once into the into its own site. So instead of having mm -hmm. 200 connections to the remote server, you would only have one, but all 200 people who wanted to receive that data, that audio stream or that file or whatever it was, they would all be able to listen to it. While I was researching the article, I went and I was looking at some of the old, um, uh, some screen grabs actually of old multicast announcements. So when you launch a station or a, a, a conference on the uh, on the M bone, you would announce it, and then it would 
flood out over the end bone and everyone who had the receiver tool would see it pop up a little bit like you'd see it on a television program guide or something mm. like that. And I was looking at some very early screen grabs of the end bone sessions and I noticed this um, this one entry which said Radio Free VAT. Now, VAT was an audio tool, Van Elsen's audio tool, but it was called Radio Free VAT and it kept appearing on different end bone sessions. And I thought, what is this Radio Free VAT? Um, and there is a story here which for the ultra geeks is, is really quite entertaining by essentially I found a little bit of metadata and in the metadata was an email address and I just thought well what the hell and I sent it I sent this email address uh, a mail saying writing this article on, on the internet um, wondered if you could tell me a little bit about Radio Free VAT I'm looking for the first internet radio station and uh, unbelievably Dave Hayes um, emailed me back and uh, he had this amazing story. I, I was literally jumping around, as I wrote in the article, I was jumping around uh, like a, a teenage girl who just got an email from Justin Bieber at this point. It was um, it was unbelievable, the story. He, he basically uh, ha was the, if you like, the systems administrator who was looking after uh, uh, NASA's JPL labs, um, Jet Propulsion Lab. So he was, uh, and he was the internet guy. So mm -hmm. this, you know, this is very, very early on in the internet. He was the internet guy. He looked after computer security, news administration, the mail servers, all the systems administration, everything. He, it was just him. Um, so one of the things he did was he connected it to the M-Bone because they wanted to be able to engage with the other academic institutions who were also on the M-Bone. And um, he was... Uh, tinkering around doing some some trying to set some bits and pieces up in his lab and inadvertently he connected um, his cd-rom player which was playing some jazz music into what were into his microphone socket um, on his on his audio tool that was connected to the mbone conferencing tool and this is kind of an announcement channel and so all the people on the M-Bone effectively had it on open hailer in their offices. Um, and so he suddenly played jazz to, I don't know, 50, 100, 150 of the key founders of the Internet. Hmm. Left it playing for a couple of minutes and then re suddenly realized what he'd done and pulled the microphone out and sorry, pulled the CD-ROM out, pulled the, disconnected the jazz, put his microphone back in, profusely apologized. Um, at which point... A number of the people who were tuned in and listening uh, thought thought this was hilarious. And uh, Steve Deering, who was the guy, but who who was at Xerox Park and who was the guy who wrote the multicast protocols and so on, one of the big godfathers of the internet, came came back saying, "If you play music like that, you can disturb us anytime you want." <laughs> um, at which point, uh, one of the other developers asked, "You know, what was the music?" And so, um, so Dave came back in saying, uh, that was the Chick Corea acoustic band here on radio KJPL from the CD and then listed the CDs and so on. And so basically I would give that, and that was in 1991. And so I mm. would give that absolutely definitively the first internet radio station call out by a DJ on the internet. And he then immediately went on to create Radio Free VAT. And for the following decade or so on, he maintained Radio Free VAT as a sort of hobby project, playing music all the time. It's 
a bit like me, his first love was really music, and uh, and he just uh, he just loved having access to the technology and maintained his radio station as a bit of a, a background hobby. So for me, um, that is the moment where these experiments actually suddenly got formed into an internet radio station that was playing live linear content to for one person playing to many audience listeners uh, over, over the internet, over, uh, certainly it was accessible over the internet. You had to be a bit of a geek to get it, but it was accessible. So you're listening to radio survivor. I'm Paul Riesmandel and you're listening to my conversation with Dom Robinson he is the co-founder and director of Ideas, which is a streaming video consulting firm, and he's a contributing editor for Streaming Media Magazine. And we're talking about the history of internet radio. And this is sparked by the fact that Dom recently published part one of A History of Internet Radio at Streaming Media Magazine. And you can see that at streamingmedia.com. And there's a link to it at the Radio Survivor website, uh, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for episode number 160. And if you have any comments about anything you hear about here on the show, drop us a line. Our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And I want to note that Radio Survivor is heard on more than a dozen radio stations around North America and is also available as a podcast. In fact, that's our roots is in podcasting. So if you ever want to uh, listen again or catch up on an episode that you may have missed, just go to our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And of course, we're available on every major podcasting listening platform from Stitcher to TuneIn to good old fashioned Apple Podcasts. And so in the first part of my interview with uh, Dom Robinson, we talked about the very first internet radio broadcast that he traces, which goes back to 1991. And we discussed how internet radio broadcasting happened in the early 90s, but it was mostly only accessible on a specialized multimedia network called the M-Bone which you would have only been able to access at universities or research institutions. And at that time, 1991, 1992, 1993, uh, most people did not have internet access at home. It was a pretty unusual thing to have. And if you did have that kind of access, uh, you probably did not have access to the M-Bone. You didn't have access to any of these very early internet radio streams, which maybe could count dozens if uh, 100 or 200 people as listeners. So now we're going to pick up and get into the internet radio, which the average person might have started to access, would have been able to hear starting in the mid-90s when commercial radio and, and just existing radio stations, not commercial radio stations, started to broadcast on the internet. So, so we then have to step forward to really the first commercial radio station coming online, um, and uh, there was a sort of two things happened there. There was the technology which enabled it, which we I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. It's a very famous brand, um, and and then there was Virgin Radio, who in 1995 
um, use that technology to uh, essentially put themselves online and be the first commercial radio operator online. So that was 1995. Here's where I have to argue with you, Dom, because I think it's difficult to discern who is the first. Do you know? Do you know the month? (laughs) Oh, now there is an interesting question. Um, Yes. I seem to remember it was summertime, but um, I don't know if he gave me the month there. So we have – I have a couple of other f- possibly firsts or at least a first and a second here in the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, a commercial station, KPIG, out of the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh-huh. uh, began its first internet broadcast in August of 1995, possibly August 2nd. And then in October of 1995, there was a station, WEBX, in Tuscola, Illinois. And it was actually founded um, with the explicit idea that it would be simulcasting on the internet. uh, So the station uh, only went on the air a little bit earlier that year in 1995 with those call letters. They called themselves The Web. And uh, I know about this one in particular because uh, their office was and studio was right next door to the community radio station where I volunteered. So, and I knew a lot of the folks who were sort of early on in that the station didn't make a go of it for very long. Um, It's an independent commercial radio station at the wrong time for that in the United States, (laughs) right before there was massive uh, consolidation. But uh, they were broadcasting on the internet in October of '95, so at least maybe two months later than KPIG in San Francisco, which might be roughly coincident with Virgin Radio in the UK. So I think the interesting thing is they, they, as far as I can work out, they were using real, um, real audio. So yeah. the interesting thing is really that 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 takes us on to the second part of the article, which my, my article, which isn't out yet, but um, essentially real audio were pivotal for everybody. uh, Rob Glazer really spotted the opportunity and he had the, he had the right skills and network and contacts to actually make the business happen. And um, so he bought real audio into the market. And then I think he went and provided that technology to numerous radio stations in a very short space of time. So I'm pretty sure um, that it's it's actually probably a matter of really going into each radio station's archive to find the first date, but I wouldn't right. be at all yeah. surprised if they all actually got the software in the same day, within the same couple of days of each other. It just probably took, you know, Virgin a month to sort themselves out to set it up, whereas it probably took KPIG a couple of days or something like that. So, I think there was I think the race started when Real Audio said you can download this radio streaming software um and and get on with it and so i should imagine that it's it's it was all precipitated by making that technology available yeah uh, real audio at least according to wikipedia was first released in april of 1995 right and you know i think it it's a technology now which is mostly defunct right mostly not being used uh, I, of course, was around and working in online media at that time. And so to me, the appearance of real audio, of course, was revolutionary uh, because of the fact that all of a sudden um, you had practical internet radio that almost anyone could tune in. And and I think it it, it's, it bears reminding that the average person using the internet at home was probably using it over a modem, meaning connected to their phones, 
at very, very slow data rates, a That's fraction right. of what people have become used to now. And one of the magic pieces of real audio was that even over that tiny connection, you could still listen to you know live internet radio. And you know, often for music uh, over a modem, it didn't sound so great, uh, but it, it, it could approach kind of the sound of, of uh, AM radio, of medium wave radio. Uh, and you know, or you could get talk programming, but I, I can remember, I probably didn't tune in at home until 1996, I think, but I definitely, I worked at a university and was, uh, tuning it in in 1995. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, um, I was playing around with MP3 a little bit at that point, but I did my first, my own first webcast with with real audio in uh, at the end of '96, October '96. So, mm-hmm. but by then, um, so Rob had been working on the technology since he was kind of excited by the whole thing in late '93, and mm-hmm. uh, so he, uh, so uh, really between that point and um, April '95, uh, when they really launched uh, real. Um, he, he was working on it in the labs and so on. And the thing about it as well I, that I think bears pointing out, you know, you mentioned MP3 and that's sort of the, the audio uh, codec uh, encoding scheme, you know, and, and format that people are most familiar with, you know, yeah. when it was released, I think, in 1993. Yeah. But as I recall trying to – I was experimenting with MP3 files right around the same time, 95, 96. And what I found is that you needed a very powerful computer <laughs> actually – to uh, to encode these with any sort of uh, any sort of efficiency, quality, or reliability, yeah, yeah, or 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 play it back. And I definitely had uh, my computer at the time, which was not a, an old computer, as a Windows uh, PC, c- could not play back MP3 files reliably. And so the the fact that uh, real player, real audio, uh, and real networks kind of came up with a scheme in which you know regular average computers that your average person might own could be capable of both sending and receiving audio over the internet that was that was good enough quality you know we we take it for granted now because you know even the tiniest little computer can do all of these things uh but it was actually quite a feat of engineering i think in software engineering to make these computers do that in 1995 yeah yeah absolutely no i i and and obviously network modems at that point were only dealing with 14.4 kilobits per second modems typically um, right and uh, so, uh, fourteen four kilobits. MP3 was the first thing that sounded okay. <laughs> I wouldn't say it sounded yeah. brilliant, but it sounded okay. And obviously, um, that you know, you you've got to be encoding your content at a lower bit rate than the network to be able to get it across the network fast enough to be able to do something in real time. Yeah, so, the lower you. You put that down, the lower the quality goes. I mean, amazingly, even today, most voice calls are still eight kilobit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that and that's that's a legacy from that era, um, uh, and so on. You know, Skype calls have uh, have have changed that, and IP based VoIP technologies have changed that. But the bit rates that were around in the mid '90s were very low, um, and uh, I think you know. That we, we go, into, I go into some detail in the article, but basically he, uh, Rob's choice to launch his technology using a voice quality audio codec um, was good enough. And MP3 is good enough. It's not a brilliant codec or anything, but it is 
good enough for most applications and it is ubiquitous and of course in the last year or so it's become license free so I think it's one of the most successful technologies although of course anyone who's selling premium on things will tell tell you that it's deprecated and over and superseded but I right. ch- challenge anyone to get a footprint the size of mp3 <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I mean as I mean that's the thing right I mean sometimes foundational technologies eventually you know become obsolete uh, because many of the conditions that they were designed to deal with uh, a lot of the challenges they the engineers were trying to overcome the challenges go away yeah you know you don't have to worry about it so much when uh, you know the average home connection has multi megabits yeah. As opposed exactly. to kilobits, as opposed to connections which are, you know, in many ways one one hundredth down to one one thousandth of the size yeah. uh, that people enjoy now. Um, in many ways, streaming audio is is not a much of a consideration for most people when they think about uh, their bandwidth bill. That's right, and and I think, um, you know, I, I I'm actually still. A big MP3 fan, uh, and we, we could sidetrack this article into that. <laughs> so let, let, maybe not, not, let, let's do that. But I'm still a big MP3 fan, and, and the fact that it's now license-free should really be something that the open source community is strongly embracing, rather than thinking it's old and over. It's still an enormously robust, useful, um, interoperable technology that works with. And you say it's now license-free. What do you mean by that? Well, so it's fallen out of all the MPEG-LA patenting, so it's now open source basically so anyone who wants to write software that can encode or decode it whereas in the past uh very recent past um again something which the average consumer may not be aware of the average listener is that uh if you had an mp3 player or you had software that was playing mp3 um by the by the letter of the law it was supposed the designer of that in the in the marketer of that software should be paying royalties back to the owner of the patents that's right the encoding software and the decoding software not the mp3s themselves correct but right. the encoding and decoding software was licensed but those patents have now um have now fallen by the fallen by the wayside so if you make your own open source based mp3 encoder or decoder or mp3 player or whatever you don't have to pay anyone any licensing fees the interesting thing about that is when um when the patents uh you know lapsed uh, when they went out of effect uh i remember the headlines though in much in much of the press in the tech press which should know better was mp3 is dead yes right? totally missed the point <laughs> right it's, it's, whereas you know it didn't mean that all of a sudden you know the hundreds of thousands of mp3 files you might have on a hard drive uh would quit working it just meant now uh, someone could build a player or an encoder and not owe any royalties to to the group that that had uh, well yeah, it's funny when i read that it has echoes so i missed buying mp3.com off the shelf in 1995 and bought the streaming metafile m3u.com or the, the the domain by the same um <laughs> by the same name which i still own um and i was watching mp3.com's meteoric rise in in the dot-com boom and talking to various different legal firms and vc firms over here in the uk um including one that is really is the powerhouse in representing the record labels and uh i remember having my first meeting with the uh, with the head now now head of the multimedia practice there back in 95 96 and um and explaining how this was going to democratize the ability for any artist to distribute their music and to reach their audiences and we've taken the friction out of the network so we've got to move the focus onto touring and live performance and raising the profile of the artists and so on and so forth and it's great for the unsigned artists and this lawyer said to me well 
which has echoes of the comment you just made about the industry describing MP3 is now dead. He said at the time to me um, that uh, if the artist isn't signed by a major record label, then they're clearly no good. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I remember vehemently thinking, you're so wrong, your industry is going to collapse. And indeed, yes. the mu- music industry just wanted to put its head under the duvet and, um, and, uh, and, and hope it would go away. And I think the people who are selling audio codecs today really would like to put their head under the duvet and hope MP3 would go away. But I don't think MP3 is going away anytime soon. No, it does not seem that way. Um, You know, so just sort of kind of circling back here to the internet radio history, I want to I want to run run this past you and see what you think because it seems to me that you know what is always behind sort of the emergence of 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 a new media platform, right, is technology uh, that that allows it to happen, and and it's not always the best technology, but it's the technology that works. And maybe it gets perfected over time. In some cases, people argue that the best technology is the one that failed, you know, beta versus VHS or something like this. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, with internet radio, you know, you have these first glimmers really of, of, of a broadcast uh, type service happening in uh, 27 some years ago, 1991, using a technology that was fairly easy to access if you had access to the internet, but you didn't. You know, most people didn't have access to the internet. There was a significant limitation to what internet radio could be. Yeah, and it seems like it took this creation of the real audio, yeah. this this uh, new and a consumer facing kind of uh, of technology. One that was created, invented for consumers to use, for average people to use on their yeah. computers at the time, uh, to turn uh, internet radio into something uh, that would eventually become ubiquitous even if we no longer use this technology and it wasn't the best right you know as you mentioned it you know they went with this sort of voice quality uh codec so that it didn't use so much bandwidth but could be sipped over the modems of the day right deal with all the limitations there but instead of perfecting it just went forward yeah and i think that that lit the fire right yeah. that uh, the and 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 alerted people to the idea that that this was that this was even possible that's right, and I think I, I think Rob. So Rob Glazer, who founded Real Networks or Progressive as it was Networks at the time, but um, he'd formerly been part of Microsoft, and I mm-hmm. think that that relationship was critical because he was, I think, he was the product manager for Word and some other, you know, really crazy brand products in one of the most sort of um, high-profile companies in the mid '90s, and uh, and while Real itself was obviously a startup, the fact that Rob had left this very influential job at Microsoft and gone off to go and do this niche thing with multimedia. And he had the vision to do that. I think that probably kept him on Microsoft's radar. And when Microsoft then, even a year after Real was out in the market, when Microsoft jumped into the market with their multimedia technologies and so on, then it just suddenly became, you know, the global phenomenon that streaming is today because it's... It was the classic David and Goliath story, even though they kind of both came from the same place originally. Um, this 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 seeming battle that went on for the for the following five or ten years between Real and Microsoft, you know, everybody had heard about it, it, it and it really propelled 
people's interest in in streaming and so on. Obviously, you know things like Napster and and MP3.com itself shook the bag and became big headline stories. But the mm. fact that Microsoft took interest and made it a story, I think, was down to the fact that Rob Glazer had come from Microsoft in the first place. And I think that mm-hmm. that's uh, that bit of dynamic was absolutely critical to many of the people you and I work with today and their careers. You know. Yeah, and I mean, right, by like the late 90s, if you bought a Windows computer, if you installed Windows on your computer, you had Windows Media Player built in. So yeah. it went it went to becoming uh, a, a standard and built-in part of your computer that you had software that could, you know, at that point stream audio and, and then later on it could get video from the internet. That this just became part of what a computer did, you know, and really what is a relatively short a span of time. And and to me, an important part of the, the real network story as well is that, if I recall correctly, early on, uh, progressive networks, as they were known, um, would give away this uh, a server license yes. to universities and nonprofits. Yes. So – that meant that you know, you know, not long after April of 1995, when they when they released the first version of the product, you had, you know, university students and professors, and you had you know non-commercial radio stations and public radio stations all experimenting with having live streams, exactly. kind of right out of the gate. You know, we argued a little bit about the first commercial radio stations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you were probably you know we probably will have a heck of a time trying to uncover what was the first sort of regular streaming, uh, non-commercial or public broadcaster, because I'm sure they were... Absolutely. Uh, as soon as it was there, you were tinkering with it. Absolutely. It was a rash that sort of spread everywhere uh, <laughs> incredibly quickly. It was... That period of time was just amazing. I remember that vividly. <laughs> uh, and, and do you know, I mean, I, you know, since you're based in the UK, do you have a sense of when uh, the BBC started to embrace internet broadcasting at all? Yeah, so um, D- I think Dave Mallinson was, um, and Darren Norman were uh, certainly key players in, in what was going on with progressive networks over here in the UK. And they were um, they were doing installs in the, certainly by 96, 97, I think they'd, I think, They'd, I can't remember the details, but I seem to remember the BBC having early real servers um, running their audio. Certainly by 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 '99, I'm certain mm-hmm. um, the BBC was was doing audio. Uh, I think it was starting to do video within a couple of years of that as well. So um, so yeah, it it was incredibly quick, and the, and the real were clever. You know, they they went out and they they got ABC online, they got the BBC online, they got good content, and that drew people to the technology as much as it drew people to the, to the content. And it was usually... Yeah, I kind of remember there being kind of even like a directory within the real player yeah. so that you would have things that you could immediately go and tune in. That's right. And there were sister projects as well. You know, it's amazing how um, the, these things all intertwine. You know, the, the, there was the Shoutcast and the Icecast family of technologies, which did start emerging at that point in time. And uh, even today, you go to Shoutcast.com and AOL bought it and forgot they owned it, I think. It's just been neglected. But even well, today... Yeah, it got, it got bought by Radionomy. Right. Who owns it and now, e- yeah. even today, it's got 80 or 90,000 st- stations streaming right. through it. It's amazingly successful technology. And, and also, unlike video technology, radio has... Prices in the computing industry have commoditized both in technology server and, and infrastructure terms and in network cost terms. So what does that mean? What does that mean to the average person then? So basically, 
somebody who wants to set up a, a radio station, you could you, you can stream to thousands of people off even a simple PC. As long as you've got the network connectivity, it's very, very cheap to scale. Video, you know, you might on the same server serve a few hundred or a few thousands of people. But unless, I, unless you're willing to uh, use somebody else's bandwidth and, and do it to YouTube or Facebook. Right, exactly. So if you want to host your own radio, which is how we all had to do it at the early, uh, in late 90s and early 2000s, um, you could put a radio server online and you could stream to a reasonably big audience. And you could do that without having to involve a content delivery network or some complex retransmission services or you know and this, this was all mm-hmm. certainly five years if not 10 years before youtube and uh, and having these services which were ad sponsored but otherwise free um and so on so i think you know ra- radios live linear internet radio has really cut ground which even today live live internet delivered tv is still just finding its feet doing so it's the, the, the audio industry has has been ahead for a long time, um, uh, and I think uh, I think that they it, it's 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 almost a bit forgotten because it's just taken for granted. People boast mm-hmm. about having twenty thousand people watching a live stream, um, but you know I know thousands of internet radio stations which have audiences of that scale and people just mm. forget that they walk in they sit down they press their favorite radio station you know, i've got one i'm going to give them a plug or a bass drive which i've listened to for 18 years now four or five days a week i sit down and i just press play and i forget it's on half the time i forget i'm even streaming it just take it for granted and so many millions of people do that when they sit down to work they put their headphones on or they turn their speakers in the office on and they just put their normal internet radio station on and they forget that that's streamed to them and it's coming over the internet they just think oh it's just music that's there so it's become so normalized that we forget that the audiences online for internet radio are vast. I'm not surprised that AdsWiz was bought by Pandora for, what was it, 145, 175 million last year? Right. AdsWiz is a company that uh, that, that runs uh, advertising onto, onto internet radio stations. That's yeah. right. And it's a huge valuation. I think it cricked a lot of necks because it was such an unexpected <laughs> thing. People expect that in the video world. It's all very mm-hmm. pizzazz and high high profile video stuff and quite narcissistic quite a lot. But the mundane, normal, just going to listen to my radio station and the music I like, that um, industry and the audiences in that industry are just huge. They're vast. Yeah. Incomprehensible. It's something big. which uh, we radio lovers, I mean, we deal with it all the time, right? We hear rate even just broadcast radio. Broadcast radio is dead. It's dying. And at least in the United States, you know, still nine tenths of the population listens to radio every week. Exactly. Right? And so, yeah, there was a point at which that number was closer to 98% yeah. uh, percent as opposed to the 90%. So, you know, and I guess when you're on top, uh, the only place you can go is down <laughs> in some ways. But that doesn't sort of, you know, and yet we, if you look at the numbers in, in the United States, and I'm sure it's similar in UK or Europe, uh, there is growth in internet radio every single month. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I've got a, a very close friend of mine runs a CD and a content delivery network. So they take, uh, you know, the uh, initial source stream from a radio station encoded into their infrastructure. And then they host servers all around the world, which they can handle millions of people connecting to their streams and so on. And, uh, you know, compared with the video CDN, they're a reasonably small company. But when you look at the volume of traffic that they do, not, not, mm-hmm. not in terms of 
bytes of data, but in terms of users using the system, it's it's almost on par with YouTube, you know, and this is a small sort of 10-man company, um, but the actual numbers of people who actually use his technology every day just to click a button and listen or say to their smart speaker, which is the big growth market at the moment, say to their smart, smart speaker, play bass drive or play ABC radio, whatever it is. The millions and millions and millions of people who are doing that and are being serviced by a relatively small company is comparable to those big headline figures that you see from, you know, Fox News, Sky Sports, whatever mm. it may be. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing place it holds in people's lives, but it's not necessarily very prescient in the front of their mind. Until you ask right. them, and then everyone's passionate about it. <laughs> it's radio. Everyone, you know, you know it's, it's just the way it is. It's just this crazy accident of history that one of the world's largest corporations would choose to subsidize internet video yeah. <laughs> rather than internet audio, and yeah. that and provide that that free bandwidth in, in free bandwidth in quotes to you know any person who chooses to use it whereas if you want to uh, broadcast uh, simpler audio uh, you have to work a little harder at yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, putting yeah. together the resources but there's nothing inherent there it's just really in some ways a simple accident of history which it turns out uh, you know the very origin of internet radio that guy who had his uh, CD player accidentally yeah. plugged into his computer, accidentally becomes the first internet DJ. And I think it's it's likely somebody would have come up with the idea, if not uh, at that particular moment in 1991. It's sort of like technologies like the, the airplane and technologies like, like radio, uh, broadcast radio. It seems as though there's always a bunch of people with the same idea at about the same time spread yeah. around the world. Just somebody manages to... Uh, Captured a flag for Play, playground games, as we call it. It's kind of those playground games that appear in many places at the same time, and nobody quite knows why. <laughs> right. But uh, no, absolutely. Dom, thank you so much for uncovering this history um, and for publishing it uh, there in Streaming Media Magazine. I'm really looking forward to uh, your follow-up, yep. where you're going to talk more with Rob Glaser, uh, yep. who, who founded Progressive Networks and Real Networks and Real Player. And I guess you're going to do a little uh, looking into your uh, into your crystal ball a bit. And yeah, and I've got I've got a nice nice section from from yourself and from uh, Mark Ramsey as well too, and uh, James Quidland who are good visionaries in the area and, and people who are passionate about radio as well. And uh, it's it's it, it it one of the greatest pleasures of this is how much enthusiasm it's evoked from people. It's one of those things which is a sort of keep saying it's taken for granted but when you start talking about it people are so passionate about it it's sort of i i, I don't know the only other thing i can think of is when you talk to people who are digital photographers and then mm -hmm. you start talking about ansel and black really good black and white photographers traditional film black and white photographers right and they've got such a passion for it <laughs> if they understand that they've got a passion for it and internet radio certainly evokes that well, thanks again, Dom. We'll look forward to part two of your series. Not at all. I look forward to speaking and seeing you all soon. That was Dom Robinson, co-founder and director of the UK-based online video company Ideas and a contributing editor to Streaming Media Magazine, talking about the early history of internet radio. You can read his article at streamingmedia.com and you can find lots of references and links to things we talked about on this episode at our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash 
Podcast. My name is Paul Reesmandel, and I really appreciate you spending another hour with us here. To learn how you can help support us, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and drop us a line at podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We look forward to talking with you next week.